Well, good morning, Fellowship Church. My name is Nick, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you again to our service where we desire to make much of God and draw the attention to Him. And so today we're going to continue on in our series on suffering entitled Hope in Suffering. And so a number of weeks ago, Pastor Tim taught on 1 Peter chapter 3, talking about how followers of Jesus can and do suffer for pursuing righteousness. That suffering for good is a privilege. And as followers of Jesus, we know that suffering will come. And when we pursue godliness, we will be blessed even in the midst of suffering. So if that's true, then are people who suffer godlier? If suffering can be helpful and good, should we pursue suffering? If you suffer more than the person next to you, does that make you a better Christian? And so the problem is we can take much of what we're learning about in this series on suffering and we can warp it. We can change the definition of good to what we think is good and not defined by God. And if left unchecked, it can lead us to the belief that because suffering can be used for good, that we in turn should seek out suffering. And if God uses suffering to mold and shape us towards Christ's likeness, that means the more I suffer, the godlier I'm going to be. Right? And so, whether intentionally or not, we do whatever we can to actually bring suffering into our lives, even through extreme circumstances, under the belief that the more suffering we have, the godlier we will become. And we can get to a point where we actually find our identity in our suffering, as if suffering were the goal. And we can even equate suffering to godliness. The more suffering I have in my life, the more godlier I am. And those who are around me who are not suffering as much, well, they're not as godly. I'm way godlier because of the suffering that I have in my life. These are the thoughts and the process that can warp some of what we're talking about in this series. And so to share a little bit more about what this looks like, I want to share a little bit of the story. Um, For eight years prior to becoming a pastor, I was a missionary. And so it was my uh, role to serve full-time into sharing the gospel and to go out and make disciples. And so uh, for for a number of years, I was living in this rundown apartment, not making a whole lot of money, working 70 hours a week, getting little sleep, driving a beat-up car, And my philosophy for fixing it was just to turn the radio up until the radio broke. And then I was in real trouble. And there were times when I honestly did not know when my next meal was going to come from. I can remember times where I did not have food in the fridge thinking, okay, God, I don't know what's going to happen today. But I continued to press on because I knew that God was calling me to this work and I was serving the Lord with my life. And so I continued to press on. And while a good and biblical desire 
my flesh began to warp that desire. Thoughts began to creep in. Well, I'm more spiritual than my friends because look at everything that I'm giving up for the Lord. I would find ways to subtly slide into conversation. Well, I only ate one meal today because I didn't have enough money to get food. In conversation with other believers, I'd find any way I could to flex that I'm a missionary. As if I was actually saying, you think you're godly? Look at me. Look what I'm doing for the Lord. What are you doing? I would think to myself, I'm working all these hours reaching out to people who need the gospel, who are struggling. And there are other people in my church who are complaining about the smallest inconveniences. Man, I'm way, way godlier than they are. You see me, God? You see them? See what I'm doing? I was like a kid trying to earn their parents' attention and affection by saying, look at me, God, look at me. Look at what I'm giving up. You see what they're not giving up? And I began to take such pride in my suffering and sacrifice comparing it to others that it became part of my identity. To the point where I actually began to subtly find ways to pile on that suffering as if it made me seem more godly and more spiritual. That maybe God would love me more because of everything that I'm giving up, because of all the suffering that's upon me. And then those thoughts slowly crept into my actions where there were times I'd purposely eat one meal a day just so I can say I only had one meal today. I'd park my beat-up car in the prime spots just to remind people of my sacrifices. Sometimes I'd wear an older shirt just to prove a point. I often viewed others maybe less as myself because of what I was doing for the Lord, and inadvertently I became judgy because somehow I thought that maybe I was a better Christian for what I was doing. You see, I became self-righteous. My suffering became the way I earned God's love. That maybe if I suffered more, that it would actually blot out my sins. That maybe through suffering, I would actually become holier. Well, these thoughts and actions are forms of legalism and asceticism. And you may not be familiar with these terms. Well, we're going to become very familiar with them today. Because they are important to understand in relation to the topic, topic of suffering. Because they can completely lead us astray. And so in today's passage, Paul is going to address these issues and these false ideologies. So I'd invite you to open your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 2. And so as we prepare to study God's word, I want to clarify some context to this passage to help us understand the framework to what is happening here. And so Paul is the author of Colossians, and he wrote this letter to the church in Colossae where he was currently in prison. And so Paul's main goal was to encourage believers to stand firm in the knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. And so the main focus of his letter really comes into play in chapter 2. And so the church in Colossae, was, uh, they were dealing with false teachings. And so one of the teachings that the Christians were wrestling with 
was to observe Jewish law as an order to become truly part of the family of God. This teaching that, okay, yes, Christ, but you also have to follow all of these rules and laws and regulations. And once you do that, that will help you become truly a part of the family of God. So let's read Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have an indeed appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." And so before we work through this passage, let's just take a moment and ask God's blessing on our time as we study his word. So God, I humbly ask that you would speak through me. I pray that our eyes would be opened, our spirits would be tuned in to the ways in which you desire to speak to us through your word this morning. God, I ask that any distractions that may be clouding our focus this morning would be quieted so that the spirit of God may speak to us through your word. Above all, I ask that you would be glorified. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so Paul here in this passage, he's going to be addressing three false teachings. Legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. Okay. And so in order for us to understand what Paul is talking about, we need to define our terms here. Okay. So the first is legalism. And so legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works. And so legalists believe that they can earn or merit God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. And so if you do good things, you follow the rules, you get a passing grade. Therefore, God loves you. And so here's an example of legalism, and I'm going to be very simple and focused so you can see the point here. And so here's an example of legalism. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, they brought sin into the world. Therefore, fruit must be sinful. So we should not eat fruit in our attempt to pursue godliness. I was hoping nobody would say amen right there. Okay. (laughs) Seems silly, right? But this, in essence, is legalism. Well, if Adam and Eve ate the fruit and then sin came, therefore, fruit must be sinful. So we should not eat fruit. Okay. Well, legalism can be, well, I don't do that. Or it could be, I do this and you don't. Hmm. Right? That's how legalism thinks. Okay. So that's legalism. And again, this is all encompassing for the purpose of our time together this morning. And so then there's asceticism. And this is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. In other words, intense self-deprivation for the sake 
of spirituality. So this is the practice of renouncing worldly pleasures that distract from spiritual growth so that you may become more spiritual. And so maybe uh, an example of this would be monks uh, or nuns, someone who removes themselves from the world, abstains from pleasures, and devotes their lives to serving the Lord. And so while on the surface, this can seem like a very good idea, and it could be when those elements are done right, but in reality, they often pursue a lifestyle where they actually try to earn God's love and favor. That maybe if they deny themselves in these ways, it will help them actually conquer sin, the flesh, and temptations. And so this mindset promotes self-denial and deliberate rejection of material comforts in order to develop spiritual sensitivity. So keeping with this whole fruit illustration, can you believe that Pastor Nick eats fruit? Can you believe that? Fruit is sinful. How can he even be a pastor? I will not eat fruit because I actually care about my faith. I don't care how delicious it is. I don't care if he walks in with a homemade baked apple pie. I will not eat that fruit. I don't know how he can eat it. Again, simple, but this is how it thinks. It's severe discipline for the sake of earning spirituality. And then there's also mysticism, which is the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. And so you really find ways to alter your consciousness to have spiritual experiences. So again, lastly, keeping along with the fruit analogy, one who is very mystic in nature, when they are in an apple orchard, they might go, wow, if if fruit is sinful, when I'm in this orchard, I just feel the weight of sin. Just feel it all over the place. It's very mystic in mindset to alter your consciousness, okay? And so these are some of the teachings, false teachings that Paul is going to address today. And so for our purposes, we're going to focus more on the legalism and the asceticism. Okay. And so if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the issue that Paul is addressing today. Here's the issue. Holding on to self-deprivation and self-righteousness and not Jesus Christ. This is the issue that he is addressing. Holding on to self-deprivation and self-righteousness and not Jesus Christ. And so let's work through this passage here together, and I'm going to hopefully show you what he's talking about. So let me read again verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So many of the New Testament believers came from Jewish backgrounds. And they often struggled with separating what was Jewish law, Jewish customs or culture, and what was actually the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they had trouble kind of disseminating between the two. And so, for example, in Leviticus 11, God gave the Israelites instructions on what types of food they should and shouldn't eat. Okay, so way back in Leviticus, the law, God gave them instructions, again, for example, on what types of food they should eat and should not eat. Well, was God trying to ruin their lives? No. But these instructions that he gave them had many purposes. Again, early on in the Bible. 
And some of those purposes included that these laws gave the Israelites an opportunity to demonstrate obedience to God. And so God's desire was to make the nation of Israel holy, to be set apart, to be obedient to God rather than their stomachs. And so number two, many of these restrictions actually helped prevent disease and health problems at the time. Third, a lot of these laws and these regulations, they separated the Israelites from their pagan neighbors. And so in not eating certain foods, it would actually let their neighbors know that they are different. They are choosing to not participate so that they may be set apart. And so many of us might know that today as kosher. And so many of the animals that they were instructed not to eat or God declared unclean were often those same animals that other pagan nations would idolize. So again, God's desire was for the nation of Israel to be set apart and different. So they might avoid certain kinds of food that other nations actually idolized for the sake of being holy and set apart. And then number four, these restrictions help demonstrate God's desire for them to pursue holiness. That was the goal, holiness. Because after God lays out some of these laws, he says in verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You should not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So these were some of the reasons why these laws were God-given. However, as years went by, religious leaders would take these commands and expand them, adding them, twisting them, to get to a point where to even say, you must follow these commands in order to receive salvation. And so what started out as good intentions to meet an end goal, the intentions of following the law actually became the ultimate goal. And so God gave them these laws to point him to himself, but instead the people of God put their faith in the commands, not the creator behind the commands. Why? Because the law could not defeat sin it could only detect sin. Only Jesus can defeat sin, and he did that through his work on the cross. And so this is what the New Testament believers were getting confused about from their Jewish background. So they grew up in this mindset, and then they're hearing the gospel, responding to faith in Christ alone for their salvation, and now they're trying to work out all of this. And in doing so, the Gentile believers were also feeling this pressure of having to conform to these rules as well. Even so, being told by other Jewish believers that they had to follow all of these rules in addition to Christ. And so the mindset was, if you want to follow Jesus to be godly, to please God, then you must follow all of these rules. You must have these spiritual experiences. You must honor all of these festivals. You must follow these rigid guidelines for the Sabbath. 
You must do this and do that in order to. That was what they were struggling with. You must do this and do that in order to pursue godliness. And if you didn't follow these, you maybe weren't considered a follower of Jesus, or maybe you were considered a lower level Christian. Oh, you don't follow the new moon festival? Hmm. You're down here a little bit. And so again, this is legalism. And if you went to extreme measures of self-inflicted suffering in your attempt to follow these rules, then you were really, really holy. And that is asceticism. Okay. And so this is what Paul says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so Paul's saying, don't let anyone judge you for not following certain dietary guidelines and calendar rules that are not of Jesus Christ. Because remember, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he said that earlier in chapter 2. So he says all that to then say, therefore, don't let anyone judge you. If Paul had Twitter or threads, he'd say, put your faith in Jesus, not the law. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, not the law. Don't put your faith in trying to follow these rules that Christ has fulfilled. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And these laws pointed out the reality that we fall short of God's standards. And that we needed a savior to bridge the gap. And so these laws were meant to point out the reality that none of us can follow God's standards. And that we need a savior. We need a savior to bridge the gap because we can't follow all of these rules. And Paul is saying that savior has come and his name is Jesus. And so that's then the context that leads Paul then into verse 18. And let's read that. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And so Paul is reminding the believers, don't let anyone disqualify you because you don't follow these certain rules and regulations because you don't go to these extreme measures of self deprivation or, you know, well, I have these super spiritual visions and you don't have those. Well, you must not be as holy because these were all false teachings. And so here again in verse 18, Paul mentions asceticism. Again, let me remind you, is self-inflicted suffering for the sake of godliness. Okay. So, for example, there were Christians in the early church who intentionally lived like John the Baptist. If you're familiar with John the Baptist, you know, uh, the, he was, you know, always wearing sackcloth, eating locusts and honey, and, you know, he was preparing the way of the Lord. And so there is even a teaching that in order to be really godly or spiritual, you actually had to live 
like that. If we do this and do that, then we will become godly or we can earn God's favor. So that was the mindset. And you might be thinking, well, that happened a long time ago. This is 2023. Well, this mindset still happens today. Again, I can go on and on with examples, but I'll just give you one. You might say, or one might say, well, the Bible says that eating too much is a sin. And we would call that gluttony. And so if eating too much is a sin, therefore enjoying food must be evil. And so I'm going to actually starve myself so that I will become holier and a better Christian. Again, this is the mindset of asceticism. But remember, self-discipline is different than what Paul is talking about here. Okay, and I want to make sure I I clarify that. Because asceticism sees the body as evil to be totally suppressed. Self-discipline sees the body as good but needing control. Asceticism is submitting my body to my will, but self-discipline is submitting my entire life to God's will. And asceticism views joy and pleasure as wrong, and self-discipline allows for the fullness of joy and pleasure in God. Okay, and so there's a difference here between what Paul is addressing and self-discipline. But in their sake of pursuing righteousness, godliness, they would say, I will do whatever it takes, and that's going to make me more holy. That's the mindset here. Okay. And so these Christians who Paul is addressing were rigidly following these restrictions, claiming to have, you know, these big spiritual visions. And they were basically becoming self-appointed religious umpires. That's the best way I can kind of think of it. Seeking to disqualify others from the spiritual prize or to judge their spirituality. Oh, you're not doing that? You're out of here. Oh, you didn't have a vision when you were caught up in the heavens? Uh, You're out of here. Oh, you didn't follow that festival? Nope, you're done. This was the mindset. And so these umpire Christians, as I'll kind of call them, were trying to even take away other salvation in Christ, telling them how to pursue godliness, how to make them actually follow Jesus. And they were assisting on these beliefs and guidelines. And they would go on and on, as Paul says, going on in great detail, becoming puffed up, portraying themselves to be arrogant And super spiritual. Look at me. Look at what I know. What I've done. Swollen with pride. But their sinful minds made them proud. And so, let me back up a second. What does this look like for us today? What does this look like for us today? Because again, this isn't something that we're learning about that has happened and we've moved on. This is still as pervasive today as it was then. So let me give you a couple of different examples, and hopefully you can follow along with me here. Here are a few examples. Well, the Bible says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, right? The, body, the Bible says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we should take care of our bodies, right? I'm sure many of us would agree with that. Well, then the mindset here that Paul is addressing, you could take that and twist it to then have the mindset of, well, did you see that so-and-so had a double cheeseburger and a chocolate milkshake for lunch? Clearly, they don't care about their body. 
I had a salad for lunch. That means I'm way more spiritual. Do they even care about following Jesus? Right? This is the mindset of, okay, well, if we're supposed to take care of our body, then inadvertently we might say, um, I had a salad with only lettuce and my dressing was water. And they, <laughs> and they had a triple-double cheeseburger. That must make me way more spiritual. Clearly, they don't even care about taking care of their temple. Right? Or maybe another phrase, another mindset could be, okay, well, the Bible says we're called to give our best to God. We're called to give our very best to God. And if that's true, then why is Pastor Nick not wearing a tie to preach? <laughs> if we're called to give our very best to God, well, why, why is he not wearing a full suit jacket? Does he not care about his faith? You know what? Maybe I better post a picture of my Bible open on Instagram today to be sure that others know that I'm reading it and that I'm a good Christian. Can you believe that so-and-so went on a beach trip this weekend? I'm going to make sure that I post how many books I read to really let people know that I chose not to go because I am really spiritual, right? And this might seem a little silly, but again, this is the mindset that can happen. And it might seem a little innocent, but these roots can take deep, deep hold of our lives. It can lead us to thoughts and places that we didn't think we could go. And so what should have the Colossian church been doing instead? Well, Paul says in verse 19, And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so the fundamental problem with legalism and asceticism that Paul is addressing is that they are holding fast, or they are holding tightly secure, they are holding fast to what they think will make them better Christians and not holding fast to the head. Well, who is the head that he's referring to? It's Jesus Christ. And he mentions that back in chapter 1 and earlier in chapter 2. And so the head is Jesus and the church is the body of Christ. So the church is the body of Christ with Jesus as our head. Meaning, Jesus is our authority who is above all. And that's why chapter 1, he talks all about the supremacy of Christ. And it's only in Jesus can true knowledge and wisdom be found. And so he makes this point to say, therefore, true growth comes from God. When we remain faithful and connected to Jesus, our head, God gives the increase. And so these false ideologies, they actually separate us from each other and the head who is Jesus Christ. These ideologies, these mindsets, they don't promote growth. They encourage separation. They lead to division, not unity. Well, I'm up here as a Christian. You're down here. Now all of a sudden... There's separation. There's division. And they actually can take the place of the head who is Jesus Christ. So Paul continues on in verse 20. He says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do you not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts 
and teachings. And so in Christ, you are now set free from the spiritual powers of this world. And so Paul is saying, so why do you keep following the rules of the world when Jesus has set you free from its power? These, these Christian umpires, these puffed up spiritual people, they're saying, don't handle that, don't touch that, don't eat that. But they're following man-made rules. And this is a great definition of legalism. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you shouldn't do that. But this type of legalistic religion is defined more by what we don't do than by what we actually do. And Paul gets to the heart of legalism, and that's pride. We decide what we should and shouldn't do. We take the place of God, and we actually become the head. We take the authority. And so why should we reject legalism? Because we identify with Christ, not by our rule-keeping. Our identification with Jesus in both his death and resurrection becomes the foundation of our lives and not following these man-made rules and regulations. And so let me pause. I'm not suggesting that we ignore rules and commands. And so if that's where you're at, don't say, hey, Pastor Nick said we can just do whatever we want. That's not what I'm saying. Because Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, obey my commandments. Jesus, he says, if you love me, follow what I'm teaching. But the difference, though, is where we find our identity and salvation. Is it in what we are doing to earn God's love? Or is it in grateful response to God's love? So I want to make sure that is noted. Okay. And so then Paul concludes in this passage with verse 23. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so these individuals and these beliefs They mask themselves as wise, but what they actually do is they usurp Christ's authority. They may even have the appearance of wisdom and humility, but that doesn't mean that they are actually following after Jesus. Because rules don't control the flesh. We must choose the spirit of God's voice, God's word, over the flesh. And if you want to learn more about that, read the book of Romans. And so we can often think that rules and self-deprivation will help us conquer the flesh, but it won't. And so Paul is exhorting the Colossian believers to reject these ideologies that mask themselves as holy, godly living that lead us to actually welcoming suffering because it is a means of holiness or salvation, but rather we must hold fast to Jesus Christ who gives us nourishment and knits us together. And in doing so, God gives true growth. And so, Pastor Nick, I thought we were talking about suffering, not legalism and asceticism. I came to church this morning because I want to hear more about suffering not these long words. Well, how do these ideologies connect to suffering? Well, 
I'm going to give you three implications and help you see why Paul is addressing this and how it connects. Number one, seeking out suffering at any cost in an attempt to become or appear godlier is legalism and asceticism, which is not biblical. And so it can be very easy for self-discipline to turn into legalism when we have the wrong motives. We can deny ourselves to the point where we actually become prideful. We may actually seek out suffering because it will, we think it will help us become more holy. We can believe that the more we suffer, the better it makes us look. The holier it makes us look. Well, this is legalism. And so legalism, again, another example, legalism might say, you have a TV? That's sinful. You shouldn't have a TV. Asceticism then will add on to that and say, oh, we don't, we don't watch that show because we don't have a TV. Because TVs are sinful. You can't be a good Christian and have a TV. We actually sit at home and stare at the wall because we're good Christians. No matter how much we hate not having a TV, we sit at home and stare at the wall for Jesus. But this is self-inflicted suffering for self-righteousness sake. The mindset is, look at my suffering. I'm a good Christian. I'm better than you. And so these mindsets are different than self-discipline. And self-discipline might say, we personally choose not to have a TV because it helps us pursue wise living And having a TV is just not helpful for us as a family. But we don't judge others who have them, and we may even watch a game or a show once in a while with friends. But again, this is how the ideologies twist our thinking to say, well, we're actually better than you because we're doing this, this, and this. Therefore, we are actually earning more of God's love than you. And this is a subtle tool of Satan because on the surface, they promote holiness, but they're based on the flesh. And they lead people from vital dependence on Christ into a system of pride and judging others, which can hurt the church. So number two, implications related to suffering. We must find our identity in Christ, not our suffering. How easy can it be for us to wrap our whole identity in our suffering? It can be so tempting to have our entire lives wrapped up in suffering, and inevitably, we live for our suffering and not for Christ. We can actually seek out suffering because it gives the appearance of godliness. Look at me, suffering for the Lord. What are you doing with your life? And again, this was that mindset that drifted into my way of thinking many years ago. And so when we live for our suffering... The more suffering we have, the more it fulfills our identity. But that's not how Jesus wants us to live. Church, we belong to Jesus Christ, not our suffering. We belong to Jesus, not our suffering. And if you are living for your suffering, what kind of gospel witness will you have? And so many of you might be familiar with this character. I'm throwing it back here a little bit. Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? And he's generally characterized as this gloomy, woe is me character. You know, why bother? The sky has fallen. Always knew it would. This is his whole identity. It affects the way he thinks, what he says, what he does, how others see him. 
And of course, I'm not saying that we should ignore our suffering because we're in a series on suffering and we know that God can use our suffering for his good purposes. And so I'm not saying we just ignore suffering. However, when we let suffering define us, we live for our suffering. We fall into the temptation to seek it out, to make it the focus, to hold on to our suffering rather than Jesus. But we must find our identity in Jesus, not our suffering. And so we shouldn't seek out suffering to find our identity in it. We should find our identity in Jesus Christ. And so the third implication here, and this is a big one, suffering doesn't pay for sin. Jesus did. Suffering doesn't pay for sin. Jesus did. And so when we live a life of legalism, asceticism, suffering is the currency. We, we use it to pave our way, sorry, I didn't mean to say that, to pay our way to eternity, to buy favor with God, to purchase the envy of others. But these are human teachings totally opposed to the gospel. This mindset doesn't just confuse, complicate, and add on to the gospel. It's an anti-gospel. Because again, remember what Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, nailing it to the cross. And so are you trying to earn God's favor through adding on suffering? Are you trying to pursue holiness by piling on suffering to look more puffed up and spiritual? Or are you trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, believing that he paid it all? And so as we close, I want to just give you two reminders. Followers of Jesus must hold fast to Christ as the head of his body, the church. Holding fast to Christ as head means not being enamored with things other than Christ. Holding fast to Christ as head means beginning and then maintaining a living union with him. Holding fast to Christ as head means submitting to him as Lord. And holding fast to Christ as head means being a part of his functioning, growing body, the church. And so are you glorying in your suffering or are you glorying in Christ? Who or what is defining you? What do you live for? What do other people see in you? Do they only see your suffering or do they see your Savior? And then the second application here is this. Godliness is not achieved through these mindsets. It is achieved through our identification of and pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so Colossians 2.20 Paul says, when we have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, he's referring to this rules-based approach. The cross ended that rules-keeping approach to God. We no longer have to observe all of these rules and regulations in order to come before God. Christ fulfilled all of that. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so the question I want to leave you with is this, what or who are you holding to? On your good days, on your bad days, in your dark times, what or who 
do you turn to when things get tough? What or who you turn to when things get tough says a lot about what or who you're holding fast to. When times get tough, where do you run? That's going to tell you real quick what you're truly holding fast to. And if you have a desire to live for Christ, don't do so through man-made rules, extreme self-suppression, or seeking out suffering because these approaches to pursuing godliness won't work. And the way toward a godly life and victory over sin is to trust in Christ as your Savior, understand who you are in Christ, and to live in light of your identification with him. And so remember, our lives should be holding fast to Christ, not our suffering. Who defines you? And so friends, we shouldn't seek out suffering. We should be seeking out Christ. We don't need to add to the gospel the good news. Christ is enough. Everything we need is found in him. He is our reward. He is the joy of our salvation. There's nothing in this world that could truly ever satisfy. So will you follow Jesus? Will you cling to your suffering? Or will you cling to the cross? So friends, don't seek out suffering in an attempt to make it seem more holy and good and righteous. But we cling to the cross of Christ. We shouldn't seek out suffering. We should be seeking out Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we humbly ask that you would allow us as a church to keep you as the head, that you would be our ultimate authority, that we would seek to follow after you. And God, we know that so many times our flesh wants us to do and do more but the gospel is about what's already been done. And that is in the finished work of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so God, I pray that each and every one of us who are here today, I pray that we wouldn't subtly even seek out suffering to say to ourselves, well, the more I suffer, the more spiritual I am, or I'm going to try to earn God's love and favor. So maybe if I do all these things for him, if I suffer for his namesake, then maybe he will love me. But God, we know that it's in and through placing our faith in Jesus. That is where our identity is. And God, even though we will face trials and sorrows, we can take heart because you have overcome the world. You overcame our sin on the cross. And so God, I pray that we would place our identity in you and not our suffering. May we be defined by our Savior and not how we suffer. Because we know that one day, all things will be right. And we eagerly anticipate that day. And while we are here, may we hold fast to you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.